Well, hey, good morning, First Free. How are you guys doing? It's good to be together. It's great to be together as a church family. It's so exciting to hear everything that God is doing in student ministries. If you don't know me, my name is Andrew. I get to serve in student ministries and worship here at this church. The girls' formal was amazing on Friday night, and it's just, it's really fun to see how God is at work in the lives of our young people. I'm uh, so excited to dive into our message time today. Our worship team has set us up really well for where we're going to go. As we get started together, I want to share a short story from my own life about the dangers of pride. It's a simple story from the world of sports, but I think it illustrates a struggle that we'll see in our text this morning. So when I was in high school, I played basketball. Any other basketball players in here? Any basketball fans? Anybody in the room? Yep, love basketball. It's such a great sport. I, uh, one Friday night, we played this really good team, and they had an amazing player. He was 6'6", he was tall, he was fast, he was a great shooter. I was not a great offensive basketball player, but I was a pretty good defensive player, so I often would cover one of the best players on the other team. So for this particular game, I was matched up against this guy. It was a, a big game on our home court. There were a lot of fans who were there, and I was really excited to cover this guy because I wanted to shut him down. Uh, in high school, I played this style of defense that was really aggressive. I tried to keep my opponent from even catching the basketball. And so going into this game, I didn't even want this guy to score a single basket. I didn't even want him to catch the basketball. And to be honest, I was pretty prideful in my own defensive ability to pull this off. From the opening tip, I played super aggressive and it didn't exactly work out super well. <laughs> when I say didn't work out super well, what I mean is that he scored about 20 points in the first half alone. And if you know basketball, or if you don't know basketball, that's a lot of points. It seriously looked like I was trying to cover LeBron James while wearing roller skates. I mean, this guy was just flying around me. It, it was really bad. And, and then came this moment that I'll never forget, and that my friends on the team and my brothers who read the game, they'll never let me forget either. The other team ran an out-of-bounds play. My guy ran out to the three-point line to catch the ball, and he, he pretended he was going to catch for a three and do a three-point shot. I went flying out to cover him at a million miles an hour, and as I was running this way, he cut this way to the basket. And what happened next seemed like it happened in slow motion. I heard my coach yelling my name, Andrew, and I knew that was a really bad sign. I knew something bad was about to happen. This guy caught a perfect pass. He took one dribble. He jumped up and did the biggest two-handed slam dunk that you have ever seen. And I think that's the point when our home fans started cheering for the other team. <laughs> it was truly a moment of eating humble pie. There are a few things more humbling than being dunked on in basketball. In, in the world of sports, uh, pride, pride is a big deal. Looking back at that game, I could see how I was blinded by my pride. I really thought that I could cover this guy, but my pride affected the way that I saw the game, my opponent, and myself. I just went in way overconfident, and it would have been better covering a player that good to take a way more humble approach. I think that's one of the dangers of pride, really in every area of our lives, not just sports. Pride can affect the way we see a situation. It can distort the way that we see our own abilities, and pride can actually make us blind. Pride can blind us to what's actually true, 
can blind us to the way that we may be hurting others. It can blind us to the ways that God wants to work in our lives. And maybe you've experienced this in your own life. Maybe pride led you into a situation overconfident and you had a reality check. Maybe pride led you to handle a situation in your family in a way that you thought was right, but you ended up hurting someone that you care really deeply about. Maybe pride has created a ton of distance in your relationship with God and you don't even accurately see just how far you've drifted from him. Man, pride can make us blind. C.S. Lewis wrote an amazing chapter about pride in the book, Mere Christianity. The chapter is titled, The Great Sin, and he says this about pride. There is one vice which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. Pride. Lewis then goes on to say this, there is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. What Lewis is saying is that we can be completely oblivious to the presence of pride in our hearts. Man, I know I've been there before, and I'm sure you have too. Pride can be like a dangerous disease that we don't know that we have, like a spider hanging from an invisible web, like a a bridge that's washed out that we can't see around the corner of a curve. Pride can be present without us knowing it. By directing our focus completely inward and gradually shifting more and then more and more and more of our attention onto ourselves, pride dims the world around us so that we no longer see it accurately. Even if we're aware of a slight pride issue, even if we recognize that in our hearts, we could ignore how serious it really is. C.S. Lewis says this, again, to quote from Lewis, He says, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Now, of course, the pride Lewis is describing here is different than the good kind of pride that we feel in a hard day's work or an achievement or an accomplishment or a family member who makes a good choice. There is a kind of pride that's good and appropriate, but what Lewis is describing here is something different. This is pride with a capital P. This is the pride of a hardened heart that says to God, I trust myself, not you. I'm gonna do this my way, not yours. Essentially what pride says to God is I'm God, you're not. That kind of pride really is the anti-God state of mind. I, I think this is something that all of us feel in our hearts, something that all of us can struggle with. Humility is the Bible's antidote to pride, but I think we can also struggle to see humility in the right way. There's a misconception about humility that sees it as weak and passive and spineless and so selfless that it's actually kind of wimpy and kind of pathetic. But as we're going to see in our text today, true humility is something different entirely. It's something all of us long for, something strong and beautiful and glorious. And when we see it, it, it's amazing to behold. It's something that can set us free from the struggle of our pride. So we'll be in Luke 14, 1 to 11 today. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there now. You can pull it up on the YouVersion Bible app if you would like. 
You can check that out at efree.org slash Bible. I'll also mention if you're following along in another language, you can do so at efree.org slash translate. Again, we'll be in Luke 14, 1 through 11. In this passage, we'll see this. Jesus exposes pride, but he commands, models, and rewards true humility. He exposes our pride, but he commands, models, and rewards true humility. He shows us what humility really looks like. So let's dive into this passage together. And before we do, let's take a quick moment and just pray and ask God to speak to us. God, we lift up this time into your hands. We pray that you would speak to us through your word. God, would you humble our hearts? Would you reveal anything that we need to see that keeps us from you? God, transform us with the good news of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's dive in. Let's get started in verse one. Luke 14, one says this. One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees and the people were watching him closely. There was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen. This parable that we're gonna look at today actually starts in verse seven. It's a contextual parable, a parable that takes place in a very specific context. The context is this dinner party with the Pharisees where Jesus has been invited. It was common in that culture to worship on the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday, and then to share a large meal where you would invite a lot of guests and sometimes invite a rabbi to teach and share further thoughts. So this is probably what has happened here. The Pharisees have invited Jesus, but it's probably unlikely that they're coming in with a humble heart ready to learn. At this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus and the Pharisees have already clashed. Jesus has healed two times on the, on the Sabbath, and he's infuriated the Pharisees by doing this. At another dinner party in Luke 11, Jesus called the Pharisees foolish people and unmarked graves. Not exactly language you use if if you want to be friendly and make friends. So there's this tension, even an animosity between Jesus and the Pharisees, and that kind of sets up the rest of our text. There's a man there, all of a sudden, in verse 2, whose arms and legs were swollen. This man has a medical condition called dropsy, which actually still exists today. It occurs when one of the body's major organs isn't functioning, and there's a buildup of fluids, often in the arms and legs. It's an uncomfortable, irritating, and painful condition. And in that culture, dropsy was seen as a sign of uncleanliness and immorality and a sign of God's judgment on sin. Now, our text doesn't say for sure, but we have to wonder, how did this man get here? It's it's possible that he just wandered in from the outside, but it's more likely that the Pharisees probably brought this man in as part of a plot to catch Jesus healing on the Sabbath. They view that as wrong, and they want a reason to condemn Jesus for doing so. Can you imagine the the pain, the discomfort, even the shame that this man must have been feeling as he's used as a pawn and paraded before Jesus for the Pharisees' selfish purposes? 
Let's continue and see what happens next. In verse three, it says, Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in religious law, is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? You have to love it. Jesus just jumps right to the issue at hand. No hesitation. He directly addresses what the Pharisees are wondering and even thinking. Shows his power that he knows what's going on in their hearts. When they refused to answer, Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away. Then he turned to them and said, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? Again, they could not answer. Jesus asked the Pharisees this question, is it permitted to heal on the Sabbath? If they say yes, they can't condemn him if he does heal on the Sabbath. But if they say no, their lack of compassion for this man with dropsy is on full display. No wonder they're silent and just refuse to answer. Jesus is exposing their pride, the wrong way they see this situation in the world. Jesus treats the man with dropsy, on the other hand, in a completely different way. He reaches out and touches and heals him. The word for touch can mean embrace or even lay hold of. It's a, um, it's a, a hands-on healing here that Jesus does. And for a man who probably knew the shame of physical isolation, this must have tr- communicated tremendous love and care. Jesus sends the man away, and we might wonder why he does that. It might feel cold or dismissive, but it's not that at all. Jesus kindly removes him from a situation where he was in the limelight in an awkward way, and he could have received even more harmful attention from the Pharisees. So Jesus heals him, allows him to go home. Jesus directs his attention again to the Pharisees. Which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your own son fell into a pit, wouldn't you lift him out? Of course they would. The Pharisees aren't able to answer. And Luke draws special attention to their silence because in that culture, silence was a sign of defeat in a debate. Orators would go back and forth and debate with each other. And when one was silenced by the logic of the other, that was a sign that the debate had been won. Luke's readers would have read this silence as a sign of self-admitted defeat for the Pharisees. But Jesus isn't just trying to win a debate here. I think he's actually deeply concerned about the Pharisees. Think about their pride. They just saw Jesus heal a man with swollen arms and legs right in front of them. Shouldn't they worship? Shouldn't they fall down on their knees in awe? Shouldn't they rejoice and and be happy and celebrate that this man has been healed? Shouldn't they declare that Jesus is the son of God and that they'll follow him? Instead, they're silent. Their pride has just totally darkened the spiritual sight of their hearts. And I think Jesus, yes, he wants to correct them. He wants to show them this, but he wants to do this because he cares about them. I think he asked these questions with some emotion in his voice. I think his heart was actually breaking for the Pharisees and their pride because their hearts are swollen with pride. And their condition is actually far more spiritually dangerous than the man that Jesus just healed. Their their hearts are are swollen with pride and Jesus cares about them and he, he wants to heal them. So he shows them their pride. This is one of our main takeaways from this passage that Jesus exposes pride. This is true in the lives of the Pharisees, and it's also true in our lives as well. He exposes pride because he cares about us. 
Earlier we said pride can be like a dangerous disease you don't know you have. And of course, you can't be healed of something if you don't know that you have it. So when there's pride in our life, God graciously shows us that it's there. This can be painful, it can be humbling, it can be awkward or uncomfortable, but ultimately it is for our good. Early on in our marriage, we were uh, visiting some friends who lived about two hours away. And as my wife and I hopped in the car, she asked, hey, do you wanna use my phone for directions? And of course, as a guy, I said, yes, honey, that's a wonderful idea. I would look. No, that's not what I said at all. I said, I know where we're going. I had a very vague general sense of, of where we were going. So I headed down uh, Highway 44, thinking that I was headed in the right direction. About half an hour in, I started to realize I had a very vague sense of where we were headed. And I think my wife picked up on this and kind of subtly uh, put the address at her phone. And she said, hey, hon, we need to make a U-turn right away. I said, what? I'm sure your GPS is, is wrong. And this is where a marital conflict ensued. You could ask Amber about it later if you want to. But she sided with the GPS, and I, of course, continued in my foolish pride. And you can probably see where the story's going, but I drove for about five or 10 more minutes. I refused to make a U-turn. Finally, after Amber got icier and icier, the more and more miles that we went, I pulled off the road to show her how wrong her GPS was. And of course, I had drove 40 minutes in, in literally the opposite direction of where we should have gone. It should have taken us two hours. The trip ended up taking like over three, and that's, that's never a good sign. Man, it was a humbling moment for me, but it, but it was good. I mean, who knows how long I would have kept driving in the wrong direction if Amber wouldn't have spoken up. And, and said something. And Amber and I laugh a lot about it now, but haven't we all had moments where we dismiss someone that we love, where we insist that we're right, that it's kind of it's our way or the highway, where we actually cause great harm to others and, and ourselves and our relationship with God? Our pride can really lead us in, in the wrong direction, both in it's kind of humorous everyday life situations and the more serious stuff of life. I think for all of us, there are moments where God graciously exposes our pride and does it for our good. He cares so deeply about the direction of our hearts. So if we're blinded by pride, headed in the wrong direction, it's an act of grace for him to show us. Is there a way that God has been exposing pride in your own life lately? important for us to pause every once in a while and think about that. Take some time to reflect and see what God is trying to show us. Even if it's been a painful season, trust that God is working for your ultimate good. In the first six verses that we just looked at, we have the context for our parable. And now with this very same group of Pharisees and dinner guests at this exact same dinner party, Jesus is going to share a parable about pride and humility. Let's read the entire parable. We'll dive in to see what it shows us about true humility. In verse seven, it says this, when Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. Or as a lot of other versions say, he told them this parable. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who's more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be embarrassed 
that you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. As Jesus observes those who are invited to the meal, he notices that all of them are trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table. Seating arrangements were a really big deal in that culture. Tables were commonly shaped kind of like the letter U, and the guest would recline around the table, and the host would be here in the middle with the seat of honor on the right and left. The closer you sat to the host, the better your social standing as viewed by all the other guests. So the Pharisees, who care about how they're perceived by others, try to sit near the head of the table. It's kind of interesting to try to imagine this scene. It probably wasn't a fisticuffs brawl where the Pharisees were pushing and shoving. It probably wasn't a disorganized game of musical chairs like we sometimes play with our junior high students over in the activity center. They probably angled for the best seats in really subtle ways. Maybe they strolled up to the host to strike up a conversation right as the meal was starting to try to weasel their way in to the best seat. Maybe they casually laid a hand or their cloak on a seat to lay claim before someone else could get there. As I tried to imagine the scene in my head, I realized that we're a lot more like the Pharisees than we'd like to admit. We may not try to take the seat of honor at a feast, but maybe we fudge the truth a little bit to try to make ourselves look better than we actually are. Maybe we cut someone else down so that we can look a little bit better in the eyes of a coworker. Maybe in a subtle way, we kind of try to promote ourselves. We're, we're a lot like the Pharisees, and we have some of the same struggles. Subtle or not, it didn't escape Jesus' notice for a moment, so he tells them a parable. When you attend a wedding, don't assume to sit in the seat of honor. You may have to give up your place and take a lower seat. Jesus' audience would have felt the shame of this scenario acutely. This was a shame-based culture where respect and honor were a really big deal. Can you imagine the host singling you out, collecting your belonging, standing up, and then slowly walking with everyone's eyes on you to the very last remaining seat? be really embarrassing, and even more so for the Pharisees. One commentator said, the Pharisees would have felt the shame in every step. (laughs) Can you imagine how uncomfortable the two unfortunate guys who made their way into those seats of honor must have felt as Jesus was telling this parable? I'm sure they were squirming in their seat. I heard a story from a friend the other day about a time this actually happened in our culture. There was a my, my friend knew a guy who once served as the chaplain for the Mizzou Tigers football team. And he attended a collegiate banquet for, you know, all the higher-ups of the college. And as he got there, he saw an open seat at one of the best tables and he just kind of walked up to it and took it and assumed, hey, I'm the chaplain of the football team. This is probably for me. A few minutes later, someone from the college awkwardly and discreetly came up and tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, I'm sorry, but we need you to move. This is actually for one of the higher ranking officials than you. He said it was really awkward and really uncomfortable. And so I'm sure we can imagine exactly how this would feel. 
The parable continues, and Jesus offers a wiser alternative, one based on the wisdom found in Proverbs 25, 6, and 7. And I think in this, we actually see a neat glimpse of the unity of Scripture. In Proverbs 25, 6, and 7, it says, Don't demand an audience with the king or push for a place among the great. It's better to wait for an invitation to the head table than to be sent away in public disgrace. Better to wait for an invitation to the head table than to be sent away in public disgrace. Jesus' alternative echoes the wisdom found in this proverb. He says, instead, take the lowest place. Then when your host sees you, he'll come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. And you will be honored in front of all the other guests. This concept of honor is really important, and it helps us Uh, come to and arrive at what true humility really looks like. So I want to look at it for just a moment. The Pharisees crave the glory of being honored by others. They crave, as one writer puts it, salvation by recognition. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Salvation by recognition. It's finding your ultimate worth and how you are perceived by others. We can look for the salvation by recognition in the eyes of different people, like our teachers, parents, friends, or coworkers. It's finding ultimate worth in how others see us in the same way that some people struggle with finding salvation in money or pleasure or sin or a whole, a whole host of a variety of things. It's important to note that it isn't wrong to seek a good reputation. We should look to be seen as people of integrity and character. And giving honor is one of God's good gifts that that he shares with us. But it's so easy to take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing by turning it into a source of salvation and ultimate meaning. R.C. Sproul, a well-known Christian teacher and author who actually passed away a few years ago, put it this way. He said, honor and exaltation are very rich and meaningful human experiences. But the exaltation and honor we experience is to be given to us, not grasped by us. Given to us by God and by others, not grasped at desperately or selfishly by ourselves. Honor is a gift, and like all gifts, it's best when given, not demanded. So here's what we see about humility. In telling them to take the lowest seat, Jesus is challenging their whole paradigm of salvation by recognition. This isn't just a social courtesy or a nice way to behave at a banquet. This is something much deeper. Jesus is challenging the way they see themselves and the way they see the world. We see that Jesus commands true humility. He commands true humility. He's calling us and the Pharisees to be the kind of people who willingly, naturally, and even joyfully follow his call to take the lowest seat at a feast. And in doing so, he's inviting us to live not by the world's values, but the values of his kingdom. He's calling us to forsake salvation by recognition and value his approval more than the approval of others. He commands true Humility and true humility values God's opinion more than anything else. This is the humility that sees God and ourselves and others rightly. Man, the world values wisdom and power and money, and it evaluates us on those criteria. In Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, God says we're supposed to look at our lives through a different lens. It says, this is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. 
But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord. Earlier, we talked about how there's a a misconception about humility that labels it as weakness or passivity or just being overly selfless. But here we see that humility takes courage and conviction. It's, It's the decided conviction that what God says about us is most important, that nothing else really matters. That's true humility. Is there a a voice, uh, an opinion that you value more than God's? Are you seeking salvation by by recognition somewhere? We're called to find salvation in God alone. Next, in in this last verse, in 1411, we, we see two further truths about true humility and what it really looks like. Jesus says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus kind of gives us the main takeaway of the parable here. There's some parables where we have to really look into it and figure out what it means. And in this instance, Jesus just says, here you go. This is the main takeaway. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this is such an amazing theme that runs all throughout Scripture, God exalted Moses, the humble leader of God's people, but he humbled Pharaoh, who hardened his heart against God. God exalted David, a humble shepherd, but he humbled Goliath, the mighty warrior who defied the God of Israel. God exalted Daniel and protected him when he humbly trusted God, but he humbled King Nebuchadnezzar, who boasted that his own power and might had had got all of the things that he had earned. Time and time again, we see this in scripture. In Proverbs 3.34, it says, the Lord mocks the mockers, but he's gracious to the humble. In Isaiah 2.11, it says, human pride will be humbled. Human arrogance will be brought down. In James 4.6, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This principle fills scripture and we see it most powerfully. Don't miss this part. We see it most powerfully in the life of Jesus. Think about his life. He was born in a manger. His family was not wealthy, influential, or famous. He recruited fishermen to be his followers. He spent time with outcasts, the sinners, and the sick. He took the humble posture of a servant as he washed his disciples' feet. And then think about the way that he died. He was beaten, crucified, and killed on a Roman cross. Has there ever been a person who modeled such humility? Think about these verses from Philippians 2, 6 through 9. This may be a familiar passage, but look at it again anew with the lens of humility. Though he was God, though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He didn't grasp onto that. He gave it up. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name that is above every other names. We may be familiar with those verses and we can miss how significant they actually are. Guys, Jesus took, he took the cross for us. That's amazing that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, would take the cross for us. Jesus models true humility for us. 
He models true humility by sacrificing himself and showing us what it really is. Humility is giving yourself up for the good of another. It's sacrificial love. This is what God calls us to in our friendships as we walk with each other through difficult times. It's what he calls us to as parents as we humbly lead and serve our children. And man, there's nothing like parenting that teaches you humility, right? It's what he calls adult children to do as they care for their aging parents, to give themselves up in sacrificial love. And it's how he calls us to treat each other here in the church. This isn't easy, but seeing Jesus' humility helps us to become more humble. There's a sense where Jesus' example of humility on the cross is what enables us to love each other with humility. I felt this myself this last week. I had a moment of course, in a message where I'm working on humility and pride, I saw so much of pride in my own heart, and I just got wrapped up in myself and my own agenda and what I need to accomplish, what I needed to do, what I wanted, and me, 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 me. And before I knew it, I was just completely focused on myself. And I took some time and just felt God say, Hey, Andrew, you need to pause and reevaluate. And God led me to a verse in Galatians where Paul talks about the significance of the cross. And it was such a humbling moment because in that moment, I just lost sight of focusing on Jesus and the cross. We need to keep coming back to the cross time and time again to let our hearts be humbled by how much Jesus really loves us. It's amazing, you guys. The Son of God loves us and gave himself up for us. One author put it this way. He says, the man who really knows himself in his own heart who knows God and his infinite majesty and holiness, who knows Christ and the price at which he was redeemed, that man will never be a proud man. When we truly see Jesus, it will help us become more humble. There's one final truth here, and it's a really short and simple one. Jesus rewards true humility. Our verse says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This verse points to a future reward for those of us who trust Christ. There's an earthly reward and an eternal reward. Here on earth, we get to experience the love of God, the presence of God. We join the church, God's family, with all of its privileges and benefits. We know a life of joy and purpose and meaning. And yes, we have sorrow and we walk through things that are challenging and difficult and our hearts get broken, but it's an abundant and full life of following Jesus and loving God and loving others. It's a beautiful thing that we get to be a part of. And that pales in comparison to our earth, to our heavenly reward. There's an eternal reward for the believer, for those who humble themselves and follow God. We'll be in the new heavens and new earth where there will be no more crying or suffering or pain. We'll be with God forever. We'll get to see him. We'll get to worship him. Maybe singing together, how great is our God as we did this morning. We'll share eternal happiness with God and all of his people. This is a great, amazing reward. God rewards true humility. There's a short poem connected to humility and our heavenly reward that goes like this. Humble we must be if to heaven we go. High is the roof there, but the gate is low. Humble we must be to heaven if to heaven we go. High is the gate there, but the gate is low. It's, it's not, there's a distinction here. It's not that we earn heaven by being humble. 
Humility isn't a virtue that earns us the right to go to heaven. Rather, it's the heart posture of one who's been saved by grace. Those who proudly strut to heaven's gates and assume that they should get in because of their own righteousness, Scripture teaches that they do not receive salvation. But those who come falling humbly, depending on the righteousness of Christ, those are the ones who receive God's forgiveness. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it like this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. It's not about our pride and what we've done. It's about depending on the undeserved forgiveness of Jesus. This is the true humility that Jesus rewards, humility that trusts Jesus's grace. So in this passage, we've seen that Jesus exposes our pride, but he commands, models, and rewards true humility. We've seen what true humility requires, valuing God's voice above all others instead of seeking salvation by recognition. We've seen what it looks like in Jesus' example on the cross, and we've seen what it leads to, an eternity in heaven with Christ. Maybe this morning for you, maybe God's working in your heart. Maybe there's an opportunity to humble yourself and receive Jesus's forgiveness for the first time. If that's you, if God's stirring in your heart, we'd love to talk with you after this service. We'll have prayer team members in the four quarters of the room. Talk to me, talk to anyone else on staff. We'd love to welcome you into God's family as you humble yourself and depend on his forgiveness. Let me also just encourage anyone who's going through a difficult time who's been walking through a hard and humbling season and you just feel exhausted and tired, if you keep walking with humility, there is a reward. Keep going. God will help you and walk with you. As we close, our worship team is gonna come and lead us in the song, Be Thou My Vision. It's a beautiful song. It's an old song. I think the lyrics come from the fifth century. And so we've been singing this for years and years as the global church of God. It fits really well with this morning's message. Listen to these words as our worship team comes. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let's pray and ask that God would make that true in our hearts. God, we want to just pause for a minute and humble ourselves before you. You're God and we're not. Your your ways are so much higher than ours, God. And so we want to take a moment as, as we sing this next song to listen to you. God, if there's pride in our heart, would you reveal it to us? Would you show it to us, God, for our good? Help us to be constantly focused on the cross. Help us to focus on the cross this next week and help us to live humbly in light of it. Would you help all of these words that we're going to sing to be true in our hearts? Help them pull us towards greater humility and living a life of worship for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.